Alright, this is Ricky. And this is Brendan. And you're listening to A Gentleman's Disagreement. Alright. What I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head. Folks of different minds because even though it did not share the pains we share, that American ideal friends made over arguments in an early morning buzz. Need an early morning buzz. All right, Brendan, so we're here back again, April the 11th on a Sunday afternoon. My, my really in my wheelhouse of recording time although you know post post 2 p.m coffee I'm, i am coming down a little bit but anyways um happy to see you again happy to be with you back to back days what are we uh what are we talking about today yeah we got to get these episodes in and recorded while we can so i am also very excited and this will take some pressure and some of the guilt off of us when we struggled during the week to get together uh we were joking last night after we recorded and I said, we've talked more about Georgia on this podcast than we than we have about Massachusetts. And so what we're going to do in this episode, this episode is going to be a Massachusetts, Boston focused episode for all you people that are from Massachusetts, that that live in Massachusetts, that are curious about the situations in Massachusetts. Hopefully this will be a little bit more of an episode for you. Uh, we're going to begin by talking about some of the transportation issues in and around the city of Boston before doing a longer segment on the mayoral race, which really excited to to begin to touch on that. Um, and then we're going to wrap up with an interview with uh, Nikayla Trunaswamy, who uh, was recently elected to the Republican State Committee. And we'll talk with her about you know, what exactly the Republican State Committee is and what it does and why she wanted to put herself out there and, and run for a position like this and her views on the Republican Party in Massachusetts. So i uh, three really different uh, topics about what's happening in our city and in our state, but I'm excited to do a, a more you know, local episode here. Yeah, I'm looking forward to, uh, to getting into it. And before we do get into it, I want to remind everyone that the podcast is brought to you by the hardworking craftsmen at Cannon Hill Woodworking, building handcrafted high-end custom tables and desks in Boston since 2018. That's Cannon with two ends, Ricky. You can check them out on Instagram or visit them online at www.cannonhillwood.com. The guys at Cannon Hill want to remind you, if you own Bitcoin, the underside of a Cannon Hill table is a great place to engrave your master key. <laughs> They're happy to do it for you. Just make sure to send it to them in an encrypted email. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they are next level with these with these uh, these liners here. Not only hardworking craftsmen, but you know, ex excellent in the in the ingenuity department as well. Definitely, first class right. every way. In every exactly, even more reason to go buy a table or desk from them. All right, so this the thing we're going to talk about first. I don't know what we're going to talk about first. We're going to talk about trains and why I say that is because like a month ago you texted me and you're like, Hey, I want to talk about the trains. I was like, okay, you're going to give me some more detail. And you, you basically haven't, but a couple weeks later, you're like, I'm serious about the trains. I want to talk about the trains. So, all right, Ricky, talk about the trains. This is, this is your segment, your time to shine here. All right. So this is something that I've slightly been following, obviously as a resident of the city of Boston public transportation has been something that um, I have relied on for, you know, most of my time, most of my sort of professional time here 
So I, I moved back to the city in 2013 and primarily, uh, you know, commuting by train, um, taking the bus here and there um, to get to and from work. And I've, I've always felt that it's kind of a foundational part of a city to have a, um, a you know, a, a more than adequate sort of a, a highly functioning um, public transportation system. But, you know, for most of my life, I've, I've only really thought about it in terms of how it affected me. Like, is it, is it uh, adequate at getting me to and from work? Is it relatively inexpensive enough where I would use it? Does it, is it reliable enough? Um, and things like that. And so I've, um, only recently started to to kind of understand a little bit, and I'm I'm really just scratching the surface here um, as to how public transportation um, really can be the sort of the like economic lifeblood of uh, of a city, especially it's um, you know especially the urban inhabitants, but a lot of like workers that come from out of the city into the city. Uh, you know, we know that private vehicle ownership is a very expensive um, sort of endeavor and that in that, you know, having a public transit system that works for everybody is really an important part um, of the equity piece of uh, of just getting different people in involved in the economy um, and really where we're at following a year of coronavirus disruptions um, here in, in the city of Boston, but uh, obviously it's not not just in Boston. I, I know a little bit more about the circumstances in Boston, so that's what I'll be talking about, but I, I'm sure you can sort of mirror a lot of these troubles um, in, in any major city. And so really what's happened is obviously uh, ridership is way, way down. Um, many of the bus routes and trains are going at, you know, 10 to 25% capacity. And that has been a big uh, challenge fiscally for um, the MBTA. So for those outside of Boston, that's the Massachusetts Bay Transportation Authority, known affectionately here as the T. Um, and, you know, more recently, their response to this has been to um, talk about reducing uh, lines. They're going to reduce uh, a lot of the commuter rail trips, which take, you know, people from outside of the city into the city. And then they're also going to reduce um, some of the bus lines, reducing the frequency on some of the um, less traveled bus routes um, today. And I think, <clears throat> I think one of the things that I've always found interesting about transportation is that um, I think it's really something that should be important to everybody, whether or not you take the train. I think if you're a person who is like, I only drive, why do I want, you know, potentially tax dollars or something like that to subsidize public transportation? Um, you know, if you've ever sat in traffic on 93 or, uh, or you know, any one of those roads going to and from the city of Boston in um, during commuting times, I think you'd certainly agree that if more people took the trains and those roads were more accessible, I think it could be a better outcome for everybody. Um, so I know that I've, I, you know, I started in one place, I'm kind of ending in another, but what I am, the reason that I wanted to talk about it and the thing that I'm afraid of is that this sort of solution to this short-term uh, sort of fiscal crunch of reducing trains, potentially making times between trains longer, um, I'm really, really worried about the future of the transit system here in Massachusetts because 
we know that when uh, people have to rely on something, if they can no longer rely on it, they'll find alternative uh, means. And if that means car ownership, that's a rider that you'll never get back to, uh, to the transit system. And these types of systems really only work when a lot of people are using them because they're, you know, they, they're built for sort of volume transactions. One or two people riding the trains is not going to do it. Um, and I think for a city, especially like Boston, uh, it's something that we really need to think about for our future, the future of sort of how we're developing this, uh, you know, our, our, how our urbanization is, is kind of unfolding here um, to think about how public transportation is, is going to fit into that. It's a good point and something that is often overlooked, like we talked in the previous episode about like infrastructure and how that's often overlooked and transportation is another one of those things where you, you take for granted until it doesn't work for you. And I feel like the T is much maligned. Like the, it's like beleaguered is maybe a better word for it. Like the only time I really have, since I've come to consciousness about this stuff, you know, in the last decade or so, I feel like the only news I've heard about the T is, is bad news. I know back in 2015, they were facing something like a $400 million uh, budget, like shortfall budget deficit. And um, Governor Baker appointed like a, a, like a fiscal control board to, to manage them. And, that board has largely gotten the finances in check over the last five or six years. But as you, as you said, there's now this new crisis where there might be another $400 million shortage in the 2021, you know, the 2022 fiscal year, uh, much of it due to the coronavirus, the effects of, of ridership on that. Uh, and so, and then in addition to like the financial issues, there are like, there've been like safety issues too. And yeah, I, I've, live my whole life on the red line and the red line generally speaking had been pretty safe but back in I don't know 2019 it had like a couple serious crashes that not only seriously delayed people that were riding it but were people were injured and, and, and it was dangerous and I know that's happened on on other lines as well uh so there are a lot of issues it's hard I mean I, there was a I know there was a bill that passed the state house I think maybe last year that was going to increase, put me a five percent, a five cent increase in, in uh, on the gas tax, and it got to the state senate, and the state senate was reluctant to put it into place because, given the economic circumstances for many people, putting you know hiking gas tax five percent, maybe not the best time to be doing that. You know, unfortunately, and I, I don't disagree with that, but you know now it, it's hard. It, it's it's a hard situation. I, I don't. Uh, have any solutions, but you're right. It, it's something that we maybe should be talking more about. Like, I don't know. I'm, I'm curious for you, like, is, is your point here that just that it should be a bigger focus amongst our local politicians and should be, uh, you know, the, we should be talking about it more as citizens of Boston and of Massachusetts? Should we, or do you have a goal of like making, like, yeah, what, what would, in your ideal world, what happens here? Yeah, it's, um, and uh, yeah, definitely don't want to pretend like I actually have the answers. And, and certainly Boston's situation is not a unique one. Um, you know, we know that, that this kind of problem is is unfolding in a lot of different places. I think what 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 I think this particular situation is 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 maybe exacerbating is the idea that 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 we do have what 
a $400 million, $400 plus million budget deficit for the, for the MBTA in large part because it's being run like a for-profit enterprise, right? So the, the talk about, you know, can we fund the T through something like a gas tax or through tolls on the pike or, or um, you know, a number of different ways to essentially get the rest of the non-riding population to fund the, the T, I think is a controversial one. Um, you know, certainly people don't like to pay for things that they're not using, but in, in reality, um, the benefits of the T are for everybody. Um, and, and that is one of those, you know, this is where, like, if I think about my, you know, not to go too high level on this, but if I think about sort of my social progressivism, it comes to the fore in issues like this, where I think that, uh, a government sort of coordinated effort and one that potentially relies on tax driven revenues or some type of communal revenue source rather than fares, um, because I think fares, unfortunately, are antithetical to what you want to happen with the T. You want more people to ride the T. And so if you need to raise money by raising fares, you're actually decreasing ridership on the T because, you know, every 25 cent increase is you know, just on the regular supply and demand curve, you know that when you make something more expensive, fewer people use it, right? So there is that um, that trade-off that for the T to be a private enterprise, it doesn't really work that way um, because of what your end goal is for, for, for a higher utilization of mass transportation, helping sort of the city and, and by and large, you know, honestly, the state, because a lot the city does attract a lot of uh, workers who come in during the day and leave at night. Right. So there, there are a lot of benefits that different groups of people can get out of this system um, that under its current construct, it's just not it doesn't feel like it's optimized to to deal with because they're constantly trying to deal with these budget um, deficits. Now, it's not to say necessarily that you want an enterprise that doesn't care at all about uh, fiscal issues, um, but this is this is one of those ones where I think we we really need to sort of understand what are all of the benefits for everybody beyond just those that are riding the T. Because we've tried, you know, the Mass Pike has probably widened two or three lanes. Um, 93 has gotten a lane wider plus the HOV lane. And you know that it doesn't matter. Anytime you get on that road after two o'clock going north or south, you're sitting in traffic for however long, right? And like the, the easiest way to deal with that is to get riders off the roads and into, and into mass transit. Um, and it really, you know, it, it has that opportunity to do so many things, invigorate um, towns that are south of Boston, north of Boston, uh, allowing residents to live there and work in Boston and have a reasonable commute in both directions. Um, there are a lot of these benefits that I, I think kind of get lost on people as we think about how do we, how do we sort of justify further investments in a, a, you know, a business that right now is not making any money. It reminds me a little bit of the conversation around like the post office that was happening last year where the post office was was bleeding money and the Trump administration was like, it, we don't want it to be bleeding money. We wanted to get it back to how it was. And Louis DeJoy was in charge of 
making it like a, you know, a fist, balancing the budget essentially. Uh, with that came cuts, which became controversial. And it's that same type of conversation of like, should this government service be held to the same standard as a business, a for-profit business? Yeah, I mean, I I think it's something that will will continue to to crop up um, here and there, and it 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 is it does feel like it's one of those issues that is being relegated to like, you know, people who ride the T should be concerned about this. But I I think my broader point um, is that for the future of the city of Boston, I think if you think of any world class city, uh. uh Washington, D.C., New York City, uh, even San Francisco to a degree, they all have very strong public transportation systems. And that, I think, is foundational to how they run that economy. And so we, we, everyone, whether you ride the T or not, especially whether you ride the T or not today, because we know so few people are using it um, under these circumstances, that, that people need to be concerned about its future. Yeah. And it's, Boston's in a tricky situation. Boston was one of, if not the very first city in the United States to uh, to have some of these public transportation uh, systems put in place, which is great. But unfortunately, now, kind of like the comparison you made with like Tokyo uh, in, in the last episode with infrastructure, is that now Boston and Massachusetts has had to deal with this infrastructure that was put in place in like the you know the late 1800s, the early 1900s, and it's not like you get to the build it all from scratch and. Boston's a, a tight, crowded city anyway. There's not a ton of room to, to you know, make massive improvements on things. You can make small upgrades. So it's tricky. And to your point, there are for sure like lots of societal benefits uh, to like a strong public transportation system, certainly economically and opportunity and access wise, definitely educationally for all of the students that live in and around the city of Boston, uh, the commuter rail in terms of bringing people here from not only all over the state, but Rhode Island and, and New Hampshire and Connecticut, like those, those you know, states as well. And as Boston, you know, wants to continue to attract high level talent and there continues to be a housing boom in Boston that's existed over the last decade and more and more people are moving here, it's becoming more crowded and there are more cars and that presents issues, not only like you and I have complained about you in particular about like parking, uh, but also issues with uh, just like environmental issues too, right? It was, there are more people, there are more cars, there, there's more traffic, like that's not good environmentally. Uh, certainly there are counterpoints where, you know, trains and buses, there's there's less freedom, right? The, the big benefit of, of private vehicle ownership is you are on your own schedule. And if you're taking a train or a bus, you are very much on somebody else's schedule. And so there, there's, I don't want to kind of minimize that too. Like there's, a healthy debate of why you should ride public transportation versus why you, you might prefer to to you know drive yourself. But uh, it, it's to your point, maybe it's a, just a debate that we should be having more of. And I, I don't know, it, I'd be curious, like with the Biden in, uh, infrastructure plan, I saw s- there was definitely attention paid to trains. I Particularly, I saw like looking into it just a little bit, like the Amtrak trains from which um, has its busiest corridor up the Northeast corridor, Boston to Washington, DC. And so there was going to be a significant investment maybe something $80 billion in, in this area and also to expand Amtrak to other areas of the country. But um, I would imagine that some of the infrastructure plan is also going to be targeted towards cities like Boston and their infrastructure too. That'll be something to keep an eye on with how that bill plays out. 
Yeah. And, and quite frankly, a lot of the opposition to the current cuts um, that the MBTA has sort of proposed and had approved is that federal money is coming. And there is sort of this, the, the fear of the, like the, the death spiral, quote unquote, where, you know, if you reduce service, then people, as I was mentioning, you know, find alternatives and those are permanent alternatives and, and you just can't build that ridership back. So this, you know, we could be looking at this sort of time um, in Boston and in many cities uh, as, as kind of pivotal, 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 pivotal for public transportation. Um, and it, and it, and you were, you know, so right that, to, to hit on the environmental issues, you know, there's a lot of attention being paid to the electric vehicles um, that, that are also sort of a part of Biden's infrastructure plan. But, you know, on top of, sure, electric vehicles may reduce gas consumption, but there's still a ton of um, energy intensity energy intensity that goes into building them, into mining the materials that goes into making the batteries. Like, they're are more uh, sort of environmentally friendly solutions that potentially, you know, may change our thinking a little bit about kind of the American lifestyle, which, as you said, it is very much centered around the freedom. And, and, and in so far as this fits in with all of our conversation, it doesn't necessarily need to be one or the other. Um, it's like, how do we, how do we find that optimal balance? Cool. All right. So the, I think I think this is an interesting segue into our next conversation about um, the mayoral race in Boston, um, and so when we come back, we will uh, we'll dive into to a little bit of that. How can I afford to see my sister in Chelsea or my brother in Roxbury? But Danny ever returned? No, he never returned, and his fate is still unknown. Now you see the sins of Boston, don't you think? It's a scandal how the people have to pay and pay. So we want to talk a little bit about the mayoral race that is just getting underway here in Boston. It's a race that we will be keeping an eye on um, over the next seven months. The, the election is in early November. Uh, but just to give a little background on, on it, uh, on January 7th, uh, President Biden selected former Boston Mayor Marty Walsh as his nominee for Secretary of Labor. Uh, Mayor Walsh was confirmed by the U.S. Senate uh, on March 22nd. He resigned his position as mayor later that day, which meant that Kim Janey, uh, who was the president of the Boston City Council, became the acting mayor of Boston uh, due to the provisions in the Boston City Charter. Uh, this was a big day. Uh, Kim Janey is the first woman and the first person of color to serve as the mayor of Boston. She was sworn in on, on March 24th as the 55th mayor of Boston. And I believe she posted, you know, Boston, it's a new day. And it, it is in a lot of ways. Uh, and we'll talk a little bit more about uh, Kim Janey in a minute, but she is the interim mayor of Boston and has already begun, you know, serving in that role over the past couple of weeks and will do so for the next seven months. But the race is now really on to uh, replace uh, Mayor Walsh and to become the next mayor of Boston. And if if anybody's lived in and around Boston for the last few decades, you know that once you get in as the mayor, it's it's not easy to get that person out 
famously, uh, Mayor Tom Menino was the Boston mayor from 1993 to through 2014. So then there was a race in which uh, Marty, Marty Walsh uh, beat uh, John Connolly uh, with 51 to, I believe, 49%. It was a really tight race back in 2013. Mayor Walsh served in the last seven years. He was challenged by Tito Jackson in 2017, but that race was not close. Mayor Walsh won with uh, almost 66% of the vote. Uh, and while Mayor Walsh probably would have faced a challenge this year in 2021, it, it was almost a lock that he was going to win. So the fact that we have an opening in the the mayoral race is not something that comes along very often. It, it's come along really twice in the last in the last thirty years. So this is a big opportunity, and we've seen that with the number, the quality of, of candidates that have already announced. Yeah, it's. Um, I, I mean, it. Yeah, you you're right to pull up that quote. It's it's definitely a new day. I think prior to Menino, you know, Boston mayors had been. Irish American men for the better part of like four or five decades. And then, uh, and then Menino comes in as an Italian American. Um, and he was there for, as you said, 20 years until his, until he, he, I think he passed while still in office, right? Or no, he, no, he, he resigned and passed like very shortly very, after. Oh, he, right, right. Yeah. Um, and so, and so, yeah, and now we're looking at a field. I think you're going to give us a little rundown of the candidates, but right as it stands today, um, every person is either a person of color or a woman or both, um, which is certainly a departure from kind of the historical norms here. But but it's, I, I, I guess if I was going to say anything, I think it it is interesting um, that your take on this this year's mayoral race is that Walsh would have kind of won in a, in a landslide. And I think, you know, history is certainly on your side um, for, for a prediction like that. But I actually felt that his footing may have been a little bit more tenuous in part because of sort of the current political climate um, and that, you know, his track record, although he did um, in many ways champion um, some diversity driven causes, um, his track record, unfortunately, just didn't bear that out in a lot of ways. Um, still huge amounts of income inequality in the city, uh, a lot of disparities in <clears throat> uh, housing access and affordability in certain neighborhoods um, where, you know, city contracts were going under his uh, under his watch were primarily not, um, you know, my, you know, minority businesses were not really uh getting uh, any benefit from from these city contracts. We'll, we'll, we'll put it that way. Um, and I think in that climate, in that context, um, I think he would have faced, or I, I like to think he would have faced a stiffer challenge in, in many ways. And, you know, personally, I don't have huge, strong feelings about Mayor Walsh. I think he's he's done a, a, a decent job as mayor. Um, but there were certainly some of those shortcomings that I think as as the sort of the country continues to awaken to a lot of these issues, um, those would have come to bear more um, in this race. And I think I think what's what's really interesting, though, and the benefit of him taking the position as the labor secretary is that instead of, you know, six candidates against Walsh, it's it's six candidates against each other. And that's one of the reasons, obviously, we will never know the results of this hypothetical race, but that's one of the reasons I didn't think that he was going to 
to have really any shot of being defeated because I thought the opposition votes would have been split. It didn't seem like there was a particularly a number one candidate that was going to be able to gather 50 plus percent of the vote to challenge him. But we'll never know. But what we can speculate on, uh, because we will eventually know about it, is this, this race that's coming up. And so I do want to run through some of the candidates. It's going to be a very superficial look at these candidates. We're still getting to know them. We'll get to know them more over the next few months. And you and I, you know, occasionally over the next few months, hopefully we can check in on the race and see how it's going, but at least give like a preliminary uh, just overview of, of who these candidates are. And it's appropriate to start with Kim Janey, who is the current um, acting mayor of Boston. She just announced her candidacy last week, and it was widely anticipated that she was going to run, but she, she made it official last week. So a little background on her. Uh, she grew up in Roxbury and then was went at the age of 11, started going to school in Charlestown. Do you know why she started going to school in Charlestown? Busing. Yeah. So a really interesting perspective. So she was part of the, you know, the very controversial court ma mandated school desegregation, what became known as, as busing. And then later she attended high school in Reading, Massachusetts through the Metco program, which is a program that, you know, you can apply for if, if you live in Boston and buses you out to suburban, largely white public schools. So um, her perspective having grown up in Roxbury, gone to like grade school in Roxbury, but then gone to middle school over in Charlestown through busing and then gone out to Reading through the Metco program uh, is a really unique, interesting perspective. And I'll be curious to hear more about that perspective. Um, anyway, she gave birth to a daughter at the age of 16. Uh, and then as she was raising her daughter, went to community college and she entered Smith College, but then uh, her grandmother died and she had to take care of her grandfather. So just a lot going on at a, at a young age, but then became a community organizer and uh, really started to increase her involvement in the communities. Um, she worked for like the Massachusetts Advocates for Children and uh, in 2001 became the director of, of that program. Uh, finally, she was elected to the Boston City Council in 2017 to represent District 7, which is Roxbury, Dorchester, some of the Fenway in the South End, um, and was reelected in 20, 2019, and then was elected president of the city council by her fellow councilors last year, which is why she she stepped up and uh, became the the interim mayor um, this past just this past couple of weeks. So, any thoughts on on Kim Janey? Yeah, I mean. Um... I, I don't I don't know I'm not familiar really with her with her career but I did read up a little bit about her experience with um, with busing in Charlestown and I think I think I I think this is you know when we say things like representation matters like these are the types of you know for for lack of a better term the lived experiences that people had that um, really shape and mold how they think about solving problems right so obviously racial integration in the city of Boston is, is a very uh, much an ongoing process. Um, and now we have someone who sort of lived through uh, an attempt at addressing it. And obviously in, in many ways, um, you know, some of the reputation for racism within the city of Boston stems from how the city reacted to the court mandated busing. Right. And she, she spoke, uh, you know, she recounted a few of her stories um, as a young girl trying to attend this school in, in Charlestown while um, 
mobs of of people sort of hurled racial insults at her when she was you know 10 or 11 years old or whatever she was when she was going to this school um and it, it is one of those things that in a city that prides itself on progressivism um and kind of you know being a stalwart liberal state almost uh and and the, you know the beacon on the hill as it as it were um this is this is something that we don't talk much about. I think you know when we don't like to think of ourselves this way, but it is a part of our history, and and unfortunately, through a lot of kind of the the systemic racism, racism content continues to be a part of our present. Um, and I'm I'm really interested to hear um, her perspective on how we start you know, thinking about addressing some of these things. And I think her main message as her kind of like campaign, uh, you know, a focal point of her campaign is going to be equity, um, which I think, I, I mean, I, certainly for me is, is, um, is an honorable or admirable uh, position to take. It's a challenging one for sure. Um, and, I, and I'll be interested to follow how, how she goes about um, tackling that. Yeah, and she's in a different position than these next five candidates that we're going to run through as the acting mayor of Boston. And in a lot of ways, it's a big advantage. Like her name recognition is going to be higher than most of these other people. And if you know she can say that, you know, in these debates, I've been doing the work, right? Like, like allow me to continue doing the work. I've already had the experience that none of these other people have. And that's a huge advantage. On the other hand, if issues crop up and those issues are almost inevitable with, you know, the vaccination process or the economy or the tea or whatever that's going to fall on her too. And that could be a disadvantage. So it'll be interesting to see how her position as the acting mayor influences her in the race. Do you know which last uh, acting mayor became the the actual mayor of Boston? Michael Carley? I don't know. I'm just taking a shot in the dark. Mr. Menino. Oh, no way. Uh, Yeah, I forget. Somebody, the prior, the mayor before Menino had been similarly tapped for a position under... uh, H.W. Bush. Um, I forget who it was. I'm going to say Ray Flynn, but we need need a fact check on that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And then, yeah. And he, he similarly, like, like you were saying, I think he really, you know, he hadn't been a household name until that happened. And, you know, he got, he got a decent amount of exposure as the acting mayor and really, you know, that catapulted him into a 20 year career as, as the mayor of Boston. Yeah, so I'm sure Kim Janey is hoping history repeats itself. Yeah, for sure. Uh, all right. So I'm going to run through these other five candidates and do it in alphabetical order. And I'll pause after each one in case you have any particular thoughts, but you know, no pressure to do so. Um, because again, we we haven't had a chance to look into them and, and they haven't had a chance to really make their cases yet for why we should be on, on team whomever. All right. Um, so first, John Barros. Uh, John Barros interest... Um, Immigrants, uh, son of immigrants from um, Cape Verde in, in Africa, uh, lifelong resident of Roxbury and Dorchester, still lives in Dorchester, uh, was a community organizer, became a community organizer like early like in his teenage years, uh, became the executive director of the Dudley Street Neighborhood Initiative, which is like a community-based effort to build affordable homes and make sure that it's really f- focused on, on housing and creating like uh, youth programs and making sure that we're investing in public health and public safety. Um, he's a small business owner, a former member of the Boston School Committee. Uh, he served in Mayor Walsh's administration for seven, seven years 
as the chief of economic development, which was a new position Mayor Walsh had created to kind of, to your point, like uh, oversee like economic development and try to make Boston a more equitable and just economy in the sense of creating more access to capital, uh, more local wealth creation, connecting to good jobs, you know, building strong neighborhoods across the city. Uh, so Barros has a decent amount of like executive experience. Yeah, I, uh, another name that I hadn't heard um, too much about, but he is kind of going to be the one who's running, um, not, not really as an outsider, but I think the other candidates are all either city council uh, men or women, or uh, I believe there's maybe one from the state assembly. Um, but he, he's kind of got that he's going to be, I think, the business type of candidate. Yeah. Uh, next on our list is Andrea Campbell. Uh, look at look at this resume. Graduated from Boston Latin, Princeton University, and UCLA School of Law. <laughs> no, no big deal. Uh, she began her legal career working uh, in a nonprofit in Roxbury. Later worked as the deputy legal counsel to Governor Deval Patrick, and in 2015 was elected to the Boston City Council in a huge upset. Uh, there was a 16-term incumbent, this guy Charles Yancey, uh, and and Campbell defeated him back in 2015, was reelected in 2017 and in 2019. And uh, she was the city council president before uh, Kim Janey. Uh, she's been a leader in that position. She was the first black woman to serve as the Boston city council president. Uh, another person that has put like racial equity at the top of her agenda, uh, leading in certain areas such as like reforming the police and criminal justice systems. And uh, also with a focus on education as well. Yeah, it's definitely an impressive resume. I think she's probably wondering how the, the timing didn't work out better better for her on the other end. I, oh, for sure. I know, right? Yeah, like not, you can't obviously predict these things, but yeah, she was she was the first Boston, like first black female city council president, which is super impressive and, and great. But, you know, a year later, a year later she, would have, she would have been those same things that Kim Janey is now. Right. Uh, all right, next on our list, Anissa Asabi George, and I, this is not an endorsement, but I, a personal soft spot. Uh, so, you know, I'll explain why in a minute. But um, also the daughter of immigrants, her, her dad immigrated from Tunisia, and her mom was born uh, in like a, a Polish, in like a camp in Germany to Polish parents, uh, to who had been displaced during World War II, and, and her, um, her parents then immigrated over to the United States. Uh, before so she's on the Boston City Council as well, as, as you uh, alluded to, um, where she was elected in 2015, re-elected in 2017 and 19. But before her time in the City Council, she was a teacher at East Boston High School for 13 years. And that's where like it touches my heart a little bit. Uh, and she's also the, this I thought this was kind of cool, mother of four boys, including three triplets, uh, which, or obviously three triplets, but including <laughs> triplets. Uh, which is another interesting thing to me. Uh, but other things, she owns the Stitch House in Dorchester. So another small business owner that uh, sells yarns and, and, and fabrics. And so she has both the background chiefly in education, but also in small businesses. Um, she lives in uh, in Dorchester as, as well. Uh, any thoughts on Anissa Asabi George? Uh, none. I, I did sort of read a little bit about her background as an educator. And I think, um, you know, again, just a very, a very different perspective um, from some of the others on 
who, you know, who are, who are running here. And I'm looking forward to see, you know, it, I, I think we'll talk about this a little bit, but, but um, a lot of the, the kind of the boilerplate kind of liberal agenda stuff is going to be at the top, but what's going to start to separate the candidates is really, you know, what, where are we going to write these, these issues that we talk about inequity um, how, you know, disparities in, in access to housing, to education, um, to the economy, to the broader economy, like these are very, very big and broad problems. Um, and the candidates are all going to look to tackle them from, you know, in part from their areas of expertise. Um, but also just, you know, the, yeah, they're going to be sort of different approaches to this, which, um, which is what I, I hope that the race kind of gets gets uh, decided on. Yeah, for sure. Uh, two more candidates. Next is John Santiago. Uh, John Santiago, uh, another son of immigrants. He, he was born in, in Puerto Rico and, and his family moved when, when he was young. Uh, went to After college, he went into the Peace Corps, uh, worked in the Dominican Republic, then won a Fulbright scholarship to study in Paris. He spent five years abroad working in, you know, all over the world. Uh, returned back to Boston and decided he wanted to go into medicine. He graduated from the Yale School of Medicine and, and worked as an ER doctor at uh, Boston Medical Center. He's also in the US Army Reserve uh, and is currently the state representative for the, the 9 Suffolk District, which he was elected to back in 2019. Uh, that district is mostly like the South End, though it also includes, it overlaps a little bit with the you know, Roxbury Back Bay and, and the Fenway neighborhoods. Just another very impressive resume. I know. Yeah. All right. And then finally, um, Michelle Wu, she was the one who was most bandied about as like maybe the primary challenger. If there was a prime going to be a primary challenger to Mayor Walsh, it it was probably going to be her. Um, She's an American lawyer, another member of the, the Boston City Council. She's the first Taiwanese American, first Asian American woman to serve on the council and is the second youngest current, um, a member to it. Uh, she went to law school and then actually studied under um, Senator Warren, uh, which I thought was kind of a, a cool connection and ran back the city council back in 2013 when she was only 31, 32. So um, pretty young. And she's been on that council now for eight years and, and worked to a lot of the the equity stuff that we had mentioned before, but also talking about climate change and, and transportation and uh, rooting out corruption and making Boston what she would term like a, a place where everybody can thrive. Yeah, and I think I I may be wrong on this, but I think she was one of the first to sort of announce um, her bid for for um, for the mayoral race, like long long before it was known that that Mayor Walsh was not going to be in the race. Yeah. Yeah, she announced back in September 2020 that she was she was challenging Walsh for it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you know, obviously, potentially going to get a little bit of a leg up with the ground game um, and the other bits of infrastructure that that I think that I think you know more than than anybody. Um, you know w- what it's going to take uh, to really run this campaign. I think one of the things that's interesting about these local elections is that nobody, you know, for the most part is really a household name at the start of these things. And especially when you take out the incumbent out of the equation, um, it's, it's going to be an interesting seven months. Yeah. And my big takeaway, and we've said this, we've alluded to it a couple of times in this conversation is like, what a, what a fantastically diverse array of impressive candidates and not 
not only diverse in terms of you know, race, but just in terms of experiences and uh, professions and like areas of focus and like, like lived experiences. And I think it's, it, it is by far the most like modern Boston race. And it's, I would say the vast majority of people in Boston are going to be able to identify personally with one of these candidates. And maybe it's because of their race or gender, but maybe it's because of the neighborhood in which they live and grew up in, or the, the area of the world their families came from, or the jobs that they had, the schools that they attended. You know, a lot of them attended, like, uh, you know, I think Anissa Savi George graduated from like Boston Tech and like, and I can probably point to all of the different schools that people went to. And that's really cool. I think for Boston, it's going to be uh, like a really, like there's a lot of really great choices. And so often we've lamented on this podcast that sometimes it feels like there are just, it's, it's you know, who's the least worst of these two, you know? And it doesn't feel like that. Uh, I'm super curious to see how it plays out. Like I said, this is, I don't know a ton about these people. This is just, I, I did some research, grabbed some of this stuff from some of their websites or Wikipedia or wherever. Um, but I'm curious to tune in more and as they make their cases to learn more about them. I like, I have no dog in this fight. I have no favorite here, really. Uh, it's something that I potentially would like to get involved in if like a candidate really speaks to me. But I, I yeah, I, I'm, I'm like, I'm very much like an open voter at this point and curious to see what you know, the cases that these candidates make. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I feel very similarly that I don't, I don't really know them enough or at all. And I think, I think that is one of the, the challenges as voters um, that, 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 you know, in an election where there is no, there's no decision made for you, right? It's not a Democrat versus Republican. You can't just go in there and blindly check off the, the box because you assume that that person at least is going to be more likely to, to support things that you support. Uh, I think you, you're, if you want to feel good behind your decision, you're actually going to have to follow this race a little bit. Um, and, and it's going to be an interesting one because there, you know, there are going to be a lot of different proposals for a lot of these big, big problems. Right. And it's a really good point because like you said earlier, all of these candidates are going to speak to equity and equality and justice in our city, because all of those, I mean, I think all the candidates realize that those are issues that our city struggles with, uh, but it's okay. How, how are you going to address that? Like, what are you going to do specifically? What is your school plan? What is your transportation plan? What is your housing plan? And like, it's going to require a little more work for voters, like you said, to feel good about those decisions. And it's going to require like effort from the candidates because you're not just going to be able to say I'm for equity because everyone else is for equity too. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Well, it's going to definitely going to make for, for an interesting race. I think we'll, we'll try and keep tabs on it and maybe try and do like a midsummer update of of where we are kind of where different candidates are polling and and what types of proposals they put out there and maybe a little bit of what we think of them absolutely all right um when we come back we're going to um, talk with Nikayla Chaniswamy who is running is ran (laughs) elected to a different position here in Massachusetts so really excited for her and hopefully you'll, you'll tune in for that conversation as well
All right, so now we are excited to welcome Nikayla Chinaswamy to our podcast. Uh, Nikayla, just to give a little bit of background on her for our audience, is a Boston College graduate. Uh, after she graduated from Boston College, she worked for the Pan Mass Challenge for a couple of years and then transitioned over to the political world working uh, on the Beth Lindstrom campaign for US Senate where she was the deputy campaign uh, manager and that's where Michaela and I met and we worked together for a few months on that campaign. Um, after that campaign, Michaela went on and is now currently working for uh, Goldman Sachs, like 10,000 small businesses, uh, a pretty cool program that we'll talk a little bit about uh, in, in that. So Michaela, welcome to the program. I'm glad to, to finally have you on. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you guys for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah. Great. Uh, so I'm curious, like I said, I met you when we were both getting into the political world. Curious for you to give a little background on your transition from the work that you were doing at, at Pan Mass to your decision to jump into the political world. And you worked on the Lindstrom campaign far longer than I did. You were on for over a year, I think. Uh, so I'm just curious, like how you made that decision to, to make, make that transition and get into like the political world. Yeah, yeah, no, great question. I think part of my decision was definitely personal, you know, it was just a, a good time in my life, which I definitely think happens to a lot of people. Like, you know, I just was ready for a change a little bit in the job. I love the job. I love the Pan Mass Challenge. I still volunteer with them. I'm still active with them. I, they'll always be close to my heart. Um, but I just really saw that I was like 24 and really wanted just, I don't know, I was like, this is the time in my life to do the job that I work like all the time at and I really am passionate about and just try it like you know I, I I just wanted to and then I think part of it that's more common to people get into politics was I really believed in the candidate you know some people it's an issue or a belief or something you know that draws them in and for me it was I knew Beth Lindstrom personally um, I thought the world of her and when I found out she was running I was kind of like I this is the kind of people we should have in office I know that and I would love to do anything to support you and she jokingly was like, well, come work for me. And I was like, oh, no, 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 no. Uh, I just meant like, you know, like volunteer on weekends. And then <laughs> yeah, I kind of went home and was like, actually, maybe I should. Like, I don't, I it was like literally a, a week long thing where we kind of texted back and forth. And I was like, well, what would that even mean? Like, I, I literally knew, I'll be honest, very little about politics. The 2016 election had just happened. And obviously, you know, I knew a lot of what had happened then, but like, I didn't really know how the inner workings operate and things like that. Um, and so it's interesting. I think though campaigns are kind of like running a startup. Like, so it is a little bit like everyone brings what they bring and then you all just kind of get in it together. I think that's why Brenda and I became friends because it's like, you're all in it together and you just um, see how it works. So that was definitely like what got me into it. Um, and then it's, it's been really interesting. It's something obviously I'm still involved in. I think, um, it is like a whole other world that people love. People obviously make careers out of, but it did definitely, um, fascinate me. I love the idea that you can like help people through politics, through government, through decisions and, and fight for what you believe in. So it was really interesting. Yeah. So now that you've had like a couple of years post that campaign experience to really sit back and reflect because in the moment it's crazy. I mean, I remember when we lost that race, it was all of a sudden, you know, you're, you're preparing for two scenarios and they're just two wildly yeah. different scenarios. And it was the first campaign I had worked on. I know same, similar for you. And all of a sudden it's just over. Right. And now, now we're on, and I know you went and worked for um, uh, Tedeschi's uh, race in Congress and I went out to North Dakota to work. And so we were on to the next race, but now that you've had some time to 
to reflect on all of that, like, what do you think were like the most valuable things that you gained? I mean, obviously, like you said, and we're going to get into this, like you've stayed involved in politics over the last couple of years. Are there particular things about that year long experience that like inspired you or like made you want to get more involved than you already were? Yeah, I think a little bit of both. It definitely is tough. I would tell anyone campaign life, like some people who go campaign to campaign for their entire life, bless them. Cause I could not do it. I was no. done. I think you too, like, yeah. you know, after midterms were over and, in November, I was like, okay, this is, I'm good. I, you know, um, but at the same time you learn so much. It really is something that as much as you put into it, you can get out of, um, you can be immersed in this network of people that otherwise you never would have met. Like otherwise, and I definitely, I'm such a people person. I love talk to different people, hear their stories, hear why they think it's so like that part of it. I think it's really the people honestly that has drawn, drawn me in. And the reason I'm still involved is I've stayed in touch with connections and friends I've made um, through those campaigns. So I definitely would say that part of it. Um, obviously you definitely learn a lot, you know, about just how local governments work, how, you know, the number of signatures you need to run a race, the number of different rules and things. And so there's like OCPF finance, to like or it's the office of um, campaign political finance too for anyone, um, which is the state level for Massachusetts. And then like FEC, which is the federal elections commission, just rules and things like that too. So there's lots of like technicality things, but you take away a lot of um, personal knowledge as well. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah, there was so much to that life that was just like, I, like, it was overwhelming in some ways. Uh, just there was, I didn't realize how little I, I really knew. And I, to your point, it was an incredible, incredible learning experience to actually see like the nitty gritty of what it takes to get people elected. It's this, you know, the stuff that never really gets covered once you have these people who become stars in a lot of ways out front, you know, there's so much that goes on behind the scenes. Uh, but speaking of like behind the scenes, I would say you and I were somewhat derisively referred to as like the liberal members of uh, of our campaign, which is ironic in some ways. But I'm, I'm curious now, like over the past few years, just for you personally, do you think you've stayed similar to that? Do you think you've become more conservative over the last few years? Uh, just, you know, we haven't talked a ton about like your personal evolution of that. Um, so curious, like any thoughts on how, how you identify in 2021 versus maybe you did in 2018? Yeah, yeah, no, great question. I mean, I definitely would say, I think since working for campaigns, I definitely feel I can find my own uh, sense of where I want to be on an issue. Whereas I think what's hard on the campaign is it's really the candidate sense of an issue. Like that's what, you know, you're representing someone, your your opinions are someone else's a little bit. So mm. um, I definitely would say, I would definitely still describe myself. I'm, I'm right of center. I'm definitely not going to be the farthest person on the right. I'm not liberal either you know I definitely right. I tell that um so I would definitely say I fall you know it's hard to say sometimes I find that I'm struggling because issues are either right or left and I don't always feel I feel some issues I fall on the right side of those issues some issues I fall on the left side like um things like that are, are trickier so I would say um it's been tricky but I feel like now I've got more of a knowledge just from being in politics on like what to pick up in the news what to read about issues and determine for myself I guess that I feel mm -hmm. more comfortable making my own decisions these days and like really finding like where I feel most comfortable on an issue where I want to be so. cool I, and I mean I know you've listened before but that's a lot of like what Ricky and I talk about and the, the types of people that we want to be in politics and whether it's behind the scenes or um, you know running for positions like we want people to be open-minded and not inflexible and you know not necessarily tied to specific ideologies so that's cool I speaking of that 
and the reason that you're on this around this time was that you somewhat recently were uh, involved in a race for the Republican State Committee. So I'm going to give a little bit of background and then you can fill in some gaps because <laughs> I know I have gaps. So over a year ago, I remember I came to your apartment down by Mass General and you had like a little gathering, like almost like a kickoff party. Yeah. Like, hey, I'm running for the Republican State Committee and we'll get into what that is in a minute. Uh, and your race, I believe, was March 3rd, mm -hmm. 2020. Yep. Mm -hmm. And so I remember like kind of looking in the papers and reading the news over the next few weeks. And I just didn't, I saw a bunch of results, but didn't hear anything for your race. And I didn't really want to follow up with you because I figured I didn't hear anything, right. whatever, like maybe didn't go great, you know? And I kind of, it, after, after a little while, it, it faded out of my mind. And then all of a sudden I'm on like the mass GOP, I get the emails. And then like a week and a half ago, I think it was like March 27th or 31st, I got an email um, from Steve Lyons, who is the Massachusetts, the, the director of the Massachusetts Republican Party. And he was saying, he was talking about your race, uh, which was the second Suffolk Republican State Committee woman totals, and that the race had theoretically just been decided. And I was like, what? Yeah. So what can, what can you fill in here? I, this, this is I, a year's worth of, of stuff, right? You're missing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Try to distill that in the next couple minutes. Yeah. 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 Um, so yeah. So, and just to back up a little bit and talk about basically what the race is. So there's 40 Senate districts in Massachusetts and both parties, Republican, Democrat, Libertarian, sorry, so beyond both, every party has basically a representative for the Senate district in, in that area. The way the Republican party does it in Massachusetts is they have a man and a woman. So one for each Senate district, 40 Senate districts, we're talking about a body of 80 people um, on the Republican state committee. And basically the responsibility is to be the representative for the party in that Senate district. So that can take a lot of different forms and a lot of different state committee members do it differently. You know, it can look like, you know, really getting to know all the Republicans in the area because you wanna know if, Maybe there's someone in the area who should run for office, whether it's state, a local school committee office, whether it's a city council, anything. You want to just know who's in the area. Um, also, if someone does run, you know, do you have a slate of 20 volunteers that are known Republicans that you can help connect them? Um, an example of that would be I live in Mission Hill and Jen Nassour ran for Boston City Council back uh, over a year and a half ago now, just about. Um, and she was one of the only conservatives that had ran for Boston City Council in 25 years. And struggle to find volunteers just because there haven't been any candidates. So things like that. Um, if there's ever an issue to, you know, like being Republican, if there's like taxes being imposed in the area, you know, in insinuating the views of Republicans on those, or, you know, if there's legislation we need to talk to legislators in the, in the area about things like that. So it can take a lot of shapes and form, but just to kind of mm -hmm. like summary. Um, and yeah. so this was already a very unique race from to back up from November because you needed to get, um, 100 certified signatures to be on the ballot. Um, and I turned in, I want to say, I can't remember about, uh, no, excuse me, you had to get 50 signatures to be on the ballot. So, and I think I turned in 86, because typically when you get signatures for any race, they say you have about an 80% success rate. Um, and so I figured I'd be okay. Um, 27, I want to say, of them ended up being certified. So I missed it by a long shot. But all the other candidates who are running as well, same thing. All the other women who we're all trying to run also didn't get any signatures. So the incumbent didn't get her signatures. 
Um, so basically, it was an empty seat. And there, you have to be a registered Republican for a year um, to run for the seat and live in the district. So it's not like there's a huge hurdle. Um, so we basically all ran write-in campaigns. Um, my name is really hard, I'll be honest. So it was my, definitely mine was a sticker campaign. Um, I, you know, I knew that no one could hear my name on the radio and then write it in. So I really made sure to like identify voters and mail them stickers ahead of time and be at polling places with stickers and do things like that. Um, so went through the whole campaign process thing, you know, typical, you know, again, as I said, and then on March 3rd, we just didn't get any results the night of March 3rd. And so the next day comes out, I'm like, okay, probably sometime today. Great, great. Like nothing. So we actually didn't get results even for this race until Monday about noon. So almost a week after the election happened. And the reason for that partly, so this is kind of what we found out later is when you are a writing candidate, you have to declare you're going to be a writing candidate. And the reason for that is the election department then has the responsibility to tell all the election clerks that any of the precincts you're running in, hey, there's going to be a write-in candidate in this area. We need you to pull the, the write-in ballots. Because if you think about it, the way the ballots scan through the electronic machine, they just pick up the bubble someone filled in. So if you vote for you know, Donald Trump or Joe Biden, let's say back in November, it knows the bubble Biden's in and Donald Trump's in. But if you're running a write-in, it just knows you filled in the bubble. It doesn't know who you filled it in for, which is fine in most cases because most cases there's not an empty seat. So it's just, you know, again, Donald Trump gets X amount of votes, Biden gets X, and there's 20 for you know Tom Brady like or whatever. So it's not as big of a deal. But in this race, they need to know who who was on those write-in names. And so after on, on Monday, they came out and they said there were 250 write-in votes cast to in, in this race for the woman in this role. So um, 250 people filled in the bubble basically. And then they came out and they said there were 25 votes for Nikayla. There were nine votes for Rachel Kemp, who was one of my opponents. And there were six votes for Eleanor Green. So we all kind of were like, well, where's the other 200 votes? <laughs> like, what, what? And it's not like, you know, again, it could be other races. You know, you could think, oh, it's like, again, the Tom Brady's and the write-in candidates. It was votes that they were saying had been had been cast in this race. Um, and so basically the other part that's also tricky is you had to file by 5 p.m. that day for a recount. But what got really, this is a crazy five hours, but we realized basically, I wasn't even going to be asking for a recount because we had proof um, these these votes hadn't been counted. That wasn't when I was asking for them to be counted again. So the whole time was I was asking for the votes to actually be counted because they weren't counted in the first place. Um, and so it was just a bit crazy. And so that was kind of what we realized a year ago. Um, I can pause if there's any questions on that or you can keep going. <laughs> No, it's it's wild, and it's it's really cool to hear like the insights. And we spend a lot of time focusing on these like massive, big picture national right. elections. But in, when we're talking about it, and you're like, I need 50 signatures, <laughs> you know, right. I, like, and I hear right, I need 250 votes were cast in this race. And right. like, that's it's it's the same process when we were running for Senate when we're knocking doors and making calls and at the polling stations, right? But it's right. these local races. And Ricky, you made this point too. Is some of these local races, and while Nikayla's not necessarily represent like a state running for a state representative, she is representing like Republicans in her district in, in some ways. And like those are some of the races that have far more impact on us than than you know oftentimes these state level or national races do. 
Right. No, it's so true. And it's like, even when I talk to my coworkers about, it, they're really great and like to be kept in. And they've been kind of on the roller coaster ride with me. And that's what I, I swear. Like, you know, you hear your your city clerks that get the signatures. You know, any kind of any all races are important. All local offices are important, and even those can be more important sometimes because they have more effect on you than a huge office that's like state or government or federal level mm-hmm. or something like that. Yeah, definitely. Um, and speaking of fifty, so the the reason too is most important was you had to get 50 write-in votes to win the seat. So the fact that none of the candidates, including myself, got 50 write-in votes was one of the most important parts of the, of the story. So basically it was an open seat still. And if, if there's a seat that's open, there's actually a procedure that the Republican party has set up to fill that via caucus. But of course, the, the, as you said, this is all happening about March 9th, 2020 so timing was not on our side and yeah and basically like I really we realized we happened got lawyers actually involved because realizing like how badly this has been messed up and how I needed help to like actually get this effective and then I want to say we filed like March 15th and of course the, the the everything shut down like the next day so that was a huge part of the timing I don't think we'd be talking about this timing if it were if coronavirus hadn't happened, I think it would have been much sooner, but that is kind of what set it to a year. And then why you heard those results, like finally through, through legislative lawsuits and things like that, petitions the city to get a recount, got the recount. And that's the the results that you heard a year later. So, yeah. (laughs) And. Oh yeah. So So I was just going to say, it's, it's crazy to like hear about all of these technicalities and one that you as a candidate are, are also kind of learning by doing, I think that should give, give everyone sort of a, you know, you don't have to actually know all the answers going into these things, but also, yeah, just like all these different rules that, you know, you think about elections as just people are voting, whoever gets the most votes wins and that's that, but everything beyond sort of the highest level of elections, not that simple. Yeah, no, and I don't want anyone to not have confidence in voting, right? That's definitely not my, you know, my goal. I, I, I certainly, you know, We'll vote again in the future with confidence. I just think this situation is such a unique, special situation. So I definitely want to phrase it like that too, you know, that this was a one-off situation because of a lot of different stars aligned. So it's definitely something unique. And yeah, I definitely didn't necessarily know how to go about it or what to do. Um, and so it was tricky. Yeah. <laughs> so where does the race stand today? So as, as far as I understand you got 65 votes and your opponents got 52 and 50, which ostensibly would, would mean that you had won the seat. And I saw some like headlines saying that you had won the seat. Uh, but then I talked to you and you're like, well, it's not, not quite that simple. Yeah, because basically, so that is the city saying these are the elect- official election results. And the town, whoever counts the votes, you know, basically certifies these are the count, this is the count we got. And then there's a process the Secretary of State has that they always like then certify the votes basically and they put the election results up on you know Secretary of State website and it's certified. There's no process for them to necessarily do that one-off, which I didn't necessarily even realize. So basically the city has done their part, but now we need to ask which kind of like the Secretary of State to certify it. And they're kind of like, well, nobody asked us kind of so it's a little bit tricky. And again, I didn't know that that's something so now that's just in that process of, of asking the Secretary of State to, to certify the election results, even though this is like a very unique situation at a one-off time, basically. So yeah, crazy. So like, are you still in limbo? 
with this? Or like, are you like, hey, I, I kind of won the seat and I'm ready to start doing work or what? Both. I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I do feel a little bit in limbo, but I mean, I definitely would love to jump in tomorrow and do work because the seat hasn't been, nothing's been happening really with it since then. So, um, and they're definitely like, there will be a, a Republican convention next year and different things that need to happen. So, um, but right now, yeah, right now we're kind of still in limbo. If it were, so what happens if there's ever like a seat that becomes vacant, um, for example, there was one up in uh, the North Shore, I believe in, in one of the Essex counties um, that Jacqueline Corvo just recently won by caucus. Um, and so she wins the caucus and then the state committee actually ratifies it, like in saying that like they accept the caucus results. But I wouldn't necessarily want to do that because this isn't a decision. This is a decision of the voters of my district. It's not something that a, like elected party should be deciding. It's the, the voters spoke and we should just take their word. So it's, it's again, just a really unique one-off situation. So, yeah. All right. Yeah. So, yeah, <laughs> that's, that, that, that's wild. That was, that was a fun like dive into like the real nitty gritty behind the scenes that uh, if stepping back a little bit, if you do go ahead and, and serve on this committee and maybe just even say you had lost the race, like why did you just, why do you want to run for the Republican state committee? Like what, what do you, what do you hope to be able to accomplish in a position like this? And I do want to provide some context for people out there and not, not Nikayla, you obviously know this, but out of registered voters in Massachusetts, Republicans make up less than 10%, right. uh, which is not great uh, for a, a number of different reasons. And so you're choosing to serve in a position that is is dealing with a sizable percentage of voters, but really only 10% of voters. So yeah, so I'm, I'm just kind of curious, you're aware of all these things. Why the Republican State Committee? Yeah, yeah, no, that's a great question. It's definitely a question I ask myself even. You know, I think any candidate has to ask themselves before they run for any race, like, you know, why do oh. I want to do this? And this district actually I found out, fun fact, in just deciding is the least Republican district in all of Massachusetts, actually. So not even <laughs> below that threshold. Yeah, but um, it really was honestly kind of what I had talked to you guys, but to is do, working on campaigns, seeing people realizing this role was kind of what I had already done some of in campaigns. And then also realizing in, in volunteering for Jenna Soros campaign and doing some like active things in the city that there just was no community. And when I asked anyone or talked to, like try to find Republicans or, you know, see, everyone just kind of said, why bother? You know, it's, it's Boston. It, there are no Republicans there. Like why even try? And I was like, I think I can do better than that. Honestly, like, I, you know, I really felt, I don't know if that's, you know, too low a threshold, but I just felt like, you know, this is something I've been doing statewide for candidates or con like in congressional seats for candidates is, is meeting people and introducing them to each other, you know, bringing Republicans together just to have like coffee hours weekly or monthly or something. So it's like, why shouldn't I just do this where, where I live? You know, I definitely know Republicans in my district. And so it really was, I mean, it's, it's that simple as just to try and do better. There's a, there were no organized ward or committees in my district even. So it was really just kind of an area that I think people in the past hadn't really tried much on because it is, it's definitely, you know, much more of a liberal area and that's totally fine, but at least, you know, we should have a voice there. And, and so that's why I felt I could represent that voice well. Uh, what do you, when you sort of think about the issues that could bring Boston Republicans together, which I think are a very different sort of breed of Republicans than maybe nationally, what are, what are some of the issues that kind of energize you or energize the conversations that you facilitate? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I would think 
first things I think of would be in increases in transportation. You know, a lot of people take in the city, take the bus, take the T, things like that. So definitely, you know, cost of those. Um, we get a lot more taxes in Boston, just being in the city. So in that sense, any kind of taxing, I think, you know, a lot of even kind of like the, the procedures of government, like, I mean, I'm definitely biased after this, but, you know, who are we putting in all of these positions? You know, these are a lot of elected roles. You know, who do we have at the elections department in Boston? Just having a voice, even if it means, you know, one out of 10 is a Republican, let's just get someone in, in that role and have a voice. Um, you know, I think a lot of people talked about, you know, Althea Garrison was on the city council for a little while and she just was a different voice. And I, I don't always think that my voice is right or someone else's is right, but I just think we should have more voices in the conversation. And so I think that's kind of like as simple as it is, is the goal, hopefully. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. That's really well said. And I, I think opposition is just important in general to, to push out. It makes everybody better. I mean, it, it's like, we talk about this a lot in the podcast, like that it should be a marketplace of ideas and you don't like ideas don't get pushed forward unless you are getting opposition and people challenging you. Like that's the only way to grow in general. So no, that, that that's cool. And good question, Ricky. Uh, yeah. I, and then curious, like this was maybe somewhat surprising to me once I really dove into Republican politics in Massachusetts in 2018 was there, there's a significant split between what, or kind of these days termed like Baker Republicans, which are more, you could say that they're more moderate Republicans or if maybe rhinos is, uh, you know, Republicans in name only, like those type of terms, depending on where you're coming from on the spectrum versus there's a sizable base that were like very pro Trump and, uh, you know, maybe f would find more in common with, you know, hardcore Republicans and other parts of the country. And I, I think I was a little surprised that there was such uh, like a, a really diehard far-right conservative presence here in Massachusetts. And I think some of that, like, I, I'm, so I'm curious, like big picture, your, your thoughts on that. And I also think that Massachusetts has, you know, 40% of Massachusetts voters are unenrolled. Many of them lean Democrat, but also I would say many people, like I'm unenrolled. I lean Republican, obviously. Like there's a sizable chunk of Massachusetts voters that are probably more conservative, but not registered Republicans maybe in some ways because you don't want to be associated with the yeah. far right, maybe the, the Trump part of the base. So, I mean, it's a, it's a challenging dynamic, which I, I know exists in every party in every state between like the, the extreme wings and the more moderate, um, you know, base of the party. But I, I don't know. I'm just kind of curious on all your thoughts on, on that. Yeah, no, I agree. Yeah. That's definitely something you hear a lot. So it's totally on base. I think a, a couple things I would say one, um, to me, it seems like it's at least we should be putting our voices out there and and getting something. Or I'm not explaining it correctly. Let's put this. So if you have a Republican issue versus like a, a issue, an issue that Republicans would take as a yes, let's say, and Democrats would take as a no. If both voices, you know, voice their opinion and maybe the no is a little lighter, like so the Republicans at least influence the decision of the Democrats and got it a little, you know, so if there is, you know, I, a lot of times people think, okay, issues are black and white, Republican and Democrat. But to me, there's a huge area in the middle that we can walk it back a little bit. So, you know, and people do say, you know, okay, if you feel that way, you know, you're not a hardcore Republican, but I'm like, wouldn't that be better to be in the middle instead of totally on one side or the other? And so if my role as a Republican in a blue state is to get things to the middle, 
to me, that's still working towards the goal. And in the sense, it's not, you know, it's not going to be perfect. I definitely agree. But I guess I I just feel like I'm going to make it better. I'm going to work towards something instead of giving up or instead of being really upset that I didn't get my way. Um, and, and that's kind of what we talk about, you know, having one voice in the room, again, that has a difference of opinion to kind of address the issue and say, you know, if there's something like a bill that has any kind of, you know, it's it's a full liberal bill, let's say, like, what would be the conservative voice on that? And to at least voice that and maybe it changes the bill a little bit. But that's still progress to me um, and, and something that, that I would want to do, I guess. So, yeah. Sorry if I didn't explain that correctly. It's a nice way to look at it. No, no, you did. Perfect. It's a good way to look at it because like you said, so much of the coverage is like claiming wins and driving the narrative, but it's, you know, if you can influence it and it's not as bad as it could have been, it's a little bit better for, for you and your beliefs and your constituents or whomever, that, that, that is a win in and of itself, even though it's not going to get the same type of of coverage or, or yeah. you know. And to your point, and I, think, I do think a lot of people vote on certain issues differently or on certain candidates differently. And that is why a lot of the, the population Massachusetts I do think is unenrolled. And we have seen go Republican or Democrat or more conservative or liberal in time. You know, it's not unheard of. Um, I think people definitely, you know, do forget that, but I think it's possible. And so again, having the conversation there for people to make that decision, giving them all the facts, things like that. There's no reason ever to, to not even try to do that. I like that. That's a nice, nice positive attitude. I uh, to take it out of politics. I mentioned this in your bio earlier, um, and just kind of want maybe you give a little more context about what you do, like with your your day job. So again, it's you work for you're like the deputy director for Goldman Sachs, ten thousand small businesses. What, what what does that entail? Yeah, basically it's it's a mini MBA for small business owners. So it's a 14 week program. We offer it at 19 colleges actually around the country, different cities around the country. Um, and it's basically, so picture you have somebody, you know, a guy who owns a hardware store because he, you know, is really good, works with his hands. He's owned this hardware store for 20 years, but now he wants to open a second hardware store and he needs help. He needs to, you know, what his profit and loss looks like. He knows no, you know, should he get a, a line of credit or should he go for a loan in order to finance this, you know? how to add on a second general manager to run the existing store so that he can open this, things like that. So our program really is designed to help small business owners grow their businesses. Um, and we give them this course that's completely free for them to do that. Um, we give them a business advisor. We give them all, they're also with 40 other business owners in, in their area too, from all different kinds of businesses. So, you know, we'll bring somebody from a farm and somebody from a restaurant and someone with a, a marketing firm and say, okay, how do you all hire? What's your hiring process? And someone will be like, oh, I, I, I can never find the right employees. Like millennials are the worst employees these days, you know, things like that. And, and another person's like, well, you know what? Actually, I found doing this, you know, or, or offering them these kinds of flex hours actually got the most out of them. So just bringing those minds to grab, together teaches them so much too. Um, but the point of the program is, you know, to help, we really focus on, on helping minority-owned, underserved business owners get accepted into this program. They go through it for free for about three months. And then we do, we help them grow and grow their businesses, grow their revenues, increase jobs in their communities. So that then the goal is that they'll reinvest back into those communities. Cause we really definitely, I mean, that's something I even politically believe, you know, is small business owners are so important to our local communities and really the backbone of it. So we should be investing in them. So yeah, I'm really lucky. <laughs> yeah. I feel like every time we, we've talked to you, you've just raved about your job and not that your job always has to be a reflection of like your political beliefs, but I think it's cool for you that you found a position that in which you can kind of do both. 
Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I did like, and that was what drew me to it, honestly, because it, you know, as you said, my background was in nonprofit. This is a philanthropic effort. And then I did like, you know, I really liked working in politics, but I didn't want to necessarily work directly in government or things like that. And so this has allowed me kind of a great combination of both. Our chairman of our organization even is a, a former um, chairman of the Democrat Party in Massachusetts. And we have great conversations. He's, I've told him all about my race, you know, it's definitely, but having that little bit is great, definitely to have the best of both worlds kind of, yeah. Stay tuned. No, I don't know. <laughs> no. Yeah. All right. And so to that point, if people are interested in, in staying tuned with you and um, following you along like your journey, your race, maybe they live in your district and are, are curious and connecting with you, where where might they be able to do that? Um, so the best way I'd say, honestly, is so email me directly to Kayla, N-I-C-A-E-L-E at G-O-P dot com, at gmail.com. Feel free. Anyone can like reach out to me there. Just my first name, Nikayla at G-O-P at gmail.com. But um, if not, there have been really great articles. Actually, the Herald did a really great article on um, March 31st, um, which I can give you guys a link to about just kind of the write up of the story, the facts, the things like that, um, which was really, I thought, well done. Um, and then hopefully there'll be more forthcoming things like that. I do have a Twitter, but I don't use it as often as I should. I'll definitely admit that. <laughs> you and Ricky both. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I'm not the best with social media. I know I'm a, I'm a terrible politician at, at not being the best with social media. Um, so I'm trying to get better, but if anyone needs to reach me, my email is actually the best way to go. Yeah. You could probably yeah. hire a millennial to do that for you. That's true. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> but if, yeah, if you send us that link, we'll throw it in and uh, we'll put it on our, our Instagram and, and people can click on that if they, if they want to follow you and obviously we'll tag you too. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you guys so much. This is great. Yeah. Really appreciate you coming on. Bye guys. Have a great rest of your night. So again, uh, thanks to Nikayla for, for coming on. It was great to talk to her. Uh, one of the things that you and I have been talking about is trying to get you know more voices in. And it was it was cool to hear her perspective on a lot of things. And as someone that's really in the mud and, and like doing the actual work, uh, it was cool for her to pull up the curtain back even more. And like we kind of talked touched on in the interview, like all of these procedures, procedural things that we never really think about, uh, but are essential really to not, I mean, not just, I'm not talking about her race in particular, but really like all of these quote unquote, smaller races that don't get a ton of attention. These are the races that often the positions that often have like the greatest impact on like our everyday lives. And so it was cool to see someone that that's in, involved in, in doing that work. Um, it was just fun to hear a perspective on a lot of those, that, those things. Yeah. Um, I mean, so much of like just the inner workings of how any of this stuff happens are such a black box. Um, you know, obviously you and her both picked this up uh, kind of without any experience, which I think is um, is really cool. And, and definitely, you know, I, I feel like that has always been a barrier to entry for people. Certainly like I, you know, I would, if I wanted to do something like that, I would have zero clue where to start. And it's fun to hear that, you know, a lot of people seem to not have any clue where to start and you, you get in there and you um, kind of learn by doing. Yeah. And it's a credit to her and we didn't really talk too much about this, but uh, you know, she's young. She's like in her you know middle age twenties, uh, a woman, uh, Indian, like there are a lot of things that I don't think were necessary to really it would have been maybe interesting to hear a perspective on on how those factors like um, play a part or like influence like her experience in the political world. And maybe if we have her on again, we can talk about that. But uh, 
there are all these things that maybe whether because of her gender or her age or inexperience would be reasons for her not to have thrown herself in there. And uh, it was, it was good of her to be like, Hey, this is, you know, if I, if I can do it, anybody can really pop in. I feel like I can make a positive difference and I have some things to say, and I, I want to go run for this particular position. It's, it's a good lesson for really anybody who's potentially considering something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And I thought the other major, um, take of like the point that she made that I, that I really hung on to was like, yeah, I'm, I am a Republican in a, in a state of, you know, 90 plus percent um, Democrats or whatever, fewer than 10% registered Republicans is probably more accurate to say, but the goal doesn't have to be to sort of like win or to be, you know, championing the legislation. It can just be to make sure that that my voice or, you know, our voices for, for this smaller constituency are still um, getting to the table and being recognized. And I, I, I think that that is something that people forget about. And we often talk about it, that, that there is always, that nothing is black and white. Right. And it just to make like things a little bit more palatable and right. It, it's probably, it's, it's thankless work because you don't get credit for it. And it's, it's where Governor Baker's taken like a ton of heat from the, the far right end of like the Republican Party in Massachusetts for not being as quote unquote Republican or conservative as people think he should be. But ultimately he's facing over like a overwhelming Democratic majorities in the, the state Senate and the state house. And what he's trying to do is influence the bills a little bit so that they are more, more palatable. And it's uh, Nikayla, in my opinion, is very much in that mold and, and having a voice like hers in the Republican Party uh, is something that I personally am really grateful for. Yeah, it was certainly, certainly fun to hear. Yeah, it's and uh, like I say, the, the different perspectives, we'll just try to continue to, to cultivate those. But all right, but um, it's been a good, good couple of days, good couple episodes. So hopefully we can do it again soon. Indeed. Until next time, we'll see you. We stay up all night on Garner Avenue Debating all the issues of the day No agenda, not yet Talking heads running around till we forget where it was we began. Some mornings you were away, some morning left your ego bruised. But what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head. Folks of different minds, because even though it did not share. Pains we share that American ideal Friends made over arguments In an early morning buzz Need an early morning buzz Learn the hard way But to those who would die upon that hill Quiet truth is better Than rain Somewhere along the line We seem to have forgotten Values sometimes being wrong. Some mornings you away, some morning let your ego bruise. But what I wouldn't give for.
occasionalize hand And folks of different minds Because though we didn't share Opinions we share Loud American ideals Friends made over arguments And an early morning buzz I need an early morning buzz There's hope behind the bluster Cause though Main Street may not sell Full of folks just like you and me. When we have trouble seeing the human for the politics, it's trying to find a better way to disagree. Some days you win, some days you leave your ego through. But what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find and chase the lion's head. Folks of different minds Because though we did not share Opinions we share on that American ideal Friends made over arguments And an early morning buzz oh, What I wouldn't give for The hope I used to find In a case of lion's head Folks of different minds Because though we did not share Opinions we share on that American ideal Friends made over arguments in an early morning buzz. I need an early morning buzz.